Hello and welcome to Full Circle Healthcare, brought to you by Medsphere. I'm James Kent. The last time I spoke with the guest that I'll be introducing in a moment, it was the springtime and we touched on where we were with the pandemic. And at that point, we were still waiting on vaccinations for children under 16, but there was this sense that the pandemic was heading into our rearview mirrors. Well, fast forward to today and nothing says the holiday season quite like Omicron. Looks like we still have some ways to go before we can definitely say goodbye to the pandemic, but my next guest is back with me today. David McFarlane, a marketing communications manager with Medsphere, is joining me, and we're going to tackle a different subject than we did the last time, but one that does make an impact on healthcare and one that the pandemic has certainly shined a spotlight on, and that's internet access. With all things being equal, we know that equal access to high-speed internet is anything but that, depending on where you live. It's going to be a fascinating topic to tackle, and I'm looking forward to it. So without further ado, David McFarlane. Are you with us, sir? I'm with you, James. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm well. Thanks. So, David, I think you and I have been around long enough to have seen the evolution of Internet access from the days of modems and dial-ups to dedicated Internet connections through broadband and Wi-Fi. We have smartphones and IoT devices. The pandemic created situations for more and more people to have to work from their home and either a totally remote or hybrid situation. And the same holds true in the education space and then even in medicine with the emergence of telehealth. We rely on internet access for so much of what we do daily. When did access become about so much more than having quick access to the latest video content and uh, sharing questionable information on social media? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I don't think we could actually point to a specific date, but we've when we've gradually become more aware over time that uh, broadband internet is, or that the internet access in general is something very much like um, water and electricity. It, it's become um, something that's uh, essential to our everyday lives, and not just so we can access cat videos and questionable content. When did that happen exactly? <laughs> It's a gradual awareness thing. We were we became acutely aware of it when the we were deep in the pandemic, when there were things that we could only do um, through the internet, and if we couldn't get reliable access, then doing those things became extremely difficult, if not impossible. So, we're aware now. Well, I mentioned access to reliable high-speed internet is so important, and for a lot of us, we just take it for granted, uh, but. It isn't quite the same situation in rural areas or some urban populations. So where do we stand as a nation regarding Internet access? You know, the data looks uh, pretty promising. Um, broadband access in all areas of the country averages around 75 percent. Uh, that's pretty good. It's yeah. um, it's not nearly as good as um, using uh, we'll use South Korea, for example, because South Korea pretty much leads the world in just about every broadband access category in terms of speed. Um, affordability, um, the knowledge of the user base, um, and in part that's because the government has made a concerted effort to make that available. So going back to that roughly 75% suburban, urban, rural, what it kind of masks that figure is that there's about 35% of the country geographically that um, doesn't have broadband access, and the access that they do have is similar to what you mentioned initially, basically modem and dial-up. There are certain situations where you might be waiting minutes for an email to download. Um, that used to be okay, 
Um, and there used to be alternatives like HughesNet. You've probably actually seen uh, the HughesNet ad. It used to run all the time on TV, satellite access. But um, it's prohibitively costly for some people. And I'm not sure that it works um, as well as you know, fiber optic broadband uh, pulled to these rural areas. So, David, what does history tell us about expanding utility access to these sparsely populated areas? I mean, that's a great question. And I think it's the most relevant question when we're having this conversation because we live in a, I mean, this is a capitalist country. It is arguably the most capitalist capitalist country. We, are, we have a, a, a pro-business attitude. Um, we want our government to have a pro-business attitude. Um, but what history tells us about utilities, specifically um, electricity, um, is that it's expensive to lay all the infrastructure to make it available in rural areas. Indeed, it's so expensive that companies can't necessarily put the infrastructure in and then make enough money off the sale of the utilities to cover their costs. And we see exactly the same thing with broadband internet. Um, there, are, there are various structures, community-oriented structures in some places that make it more uh, doable and more efficient. But for the most part, laying fiber optic cable is expensive and you can't recoup your costs by going out to rural and farming communities um, enough to make it worthwhile for a company. Yeah, I mean, that makes total sense, right? Because <laughs> the reality is things come down to dollars and cents. And while I am sure the nation's largest providers would love to have customers in all areas, some populations are remote and have that complex geography. And it probably wasn't economically feasible to give them the access they need. So what does that mean for people depending on where they live if they live in these rural areas is there anything as individual citizens they can even do in uh, there are some things that they can do depending on where they live so about uh, we've got 18 states that have um laws or regulations that prohibit community oriented approaches to providing broadband um hmm. some states are more conservative and they put these uh, pro-business um uh, legislative acts in place. So in those 18 states, I would imagine it's pretty difficult, um, if not impossible. But in the other 32, um, you have the opportunity to form um, communitarian arrangements that help everybody shoulder the cost. Those are some things that you can do. Um, there aren't, There isn't a lot that you as an individual citizen can do technologically. Um, it's not like you can go out and pull that broadband to your house yourself. Um, which means that we end up with a situation where the only actor with the resources and the responsibility is the government on various levels. We're going to get into the government in a moment, but how does this lack of broadband access impact industry? And I'm looking at healthcare on this one. I live in a semi-rural community. Uh, we are the city portion of the area, and we have a regional healthcare facility, and we have pretty decent access to high-speed internet. But in some of the more rural of our neighbors, uh, their healthcare clinics do not have the same internet access as we do. What are you seeing? And what are some other industries that you found impacted by a lack of internet access or could be impacted if they don't have it? Well, I think it's helpful to start with hospitals and talk about the ways in which they're um, directly impacted. Um, and we've seen this acutely since the beginning of the pandemic, um, particularly with behavioral health care, but then with all kinds of other care that doesn't require um, immediate attention. Uh, telehealth became the standard, basically. 
if your doctor could see you by video and try and diagnose whatever was going on with you by a video or offer you counseling in the behavioral health um, example, um, then telehealth was the way to do that. So there was no face-to-face -face interaction. Um, so we saw a lot of that as soon as the pandemic started. It became obvious at that point that rural hospitals that didn't have broadband access were going to have trouble accessing the care. There are a lot of rural hospitals that have relationships with larger academic facilities in urban areas. Um, and the, the uh, providers that work in these large academic centers can provide services to the rural centers through telehealth. If broadband's not there, that becomes a lot more difficult. The pandemic made that acutely obvious to us. But prior to that, telehealth was growing a lot less slowly, but it was uh, clear the benefits it could provide simply by enabling rural um, hospitals and providers to have access to the levels of care and the expertise available to them in large uh, urban medical centers and academic medical centers. Um, it just ramped it up a lot when we went to the pandemic. So that's how it directly impacts um, hospitals and clinics. The way that it directly and indirectly uh, impacts them is in terms of the overall health of the communities in which these hospitals exist. So take another business, for example, that is, exists in a rural area that can't get good broadband access or who is trying to recruit from an employee base where they can't get good broadband access. The chances are good that in that community, a lot of young people don't want to move there because broadband has become so essential to their everyday lives. So Absolutely. the recruitment, yeah. So the recruitment base for that uh, company becomes much, much smaller. Getting people to work is going to be very difficult. Um, the extent, by extension, then the patient base for that hospital has become much, much smaller. Uh, their revenue base has shrunk considerably, and you start to see the ways in which lack of broadband access just undermines the economic viability of smaller towns and rural farming communities, so that surviving for every member of the community becomes a little bit more tenuous and more difficult. Okay. There are two pieces of legislature designed to help solve this broadband access problem in rural areas. The first is RDOF, which is the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund. That's been in place for a couple of years. And the second is the Infrastructure and Jobs Act, which was just signed into law. We don't need a deep dive on both pieces of legislations, but what they do provide is a whole heck of a lot of money to get broadband access out to these rural areas. So what do you see at the local level these rural areas doing to utilize uh, what the feds are providing to increase broadband access? So the more financially impactful of the two is clearly going to be the recently signed infrastructure bill. The president signed that last month. Um, he wanted $100 billion for, to extend broadband access. He settled for $65 billion in his deal with the Republicans, which is still a lot of money. Um, yep. And now the federal government is going to be going through the process of um, identifying vendors, uh, companies to actually start laboring, laying the fiber optic. Uh, and this is going to be a lengthy process. Everybody says, of course, if the federal government gets involved, it becomes a lengthier process. I mean, because of the red tape, that's probably true. But now we're going to be going through a process where you're actually seeing some progress in terms of selecting vendors, companies that can lay the fiber and then make it available to these communities. It won't happen overnight. But now that there's actually this much money allotted uh, to it and they're actually going through the process of choosing the people to do the work, it looks like it's actually going to happen. 
I don't know enough details to say, well, there'll still be communities that are left out. Um, or how will it be impacted? Uh, how will certain communities uh, be impacted? Will they, will the money be spent equally? Will everybody get access? I think it's too early to see things like that. Yes, but at least at the beginning of our conversation, we talked about the economic feasibility for a lot of these providers uh, to lay broadband infrastructure um, and that these funds could help alleviate these those burdens so we can finally get that if that's what the barrier was. Uh, you and I were talking before we started this podcast and there are some communities that are resistant to change. Uh, you have to take that as it comes, but as far as the other aspect, the monetary aspect, I think this could be a really good thing. And that's on top of the $20.4 billion that Ardoff is supplying. So again, we have a total of about 80 to $85 billion devoted to this endeavor. And that brings me into my wrap-up. And I hope you've been practicing your crystal ball skills here because I'm going to ask you to peer inside it and tell me what you see in the U.S. regarding broadband access at the end of the decade, roughly 8 to 10 years from now. What's that going to look like? Hold on. Let me get the ball. Okay. Get the ball. That's right. <laughs> get that ball out. Other than military, the pace with which the federal government works, eight years will see some change. And for some communities, it will be dramatic change. Will it be dramatic change for entire states? Um, will it be dramatic change for every rural community? I don't think so. Now, this will take some time to, ro to uh, roll out. Um, yeah. And there's a decent chance that the amount of money that's been allotted for this now is not sufficient. So then you're in a situation where you have to go back to Congress and a lot more funds for this. I would actually fully expect that, given that most yep. uh, federal projects end up going over budget. So, sure. you know, fits and starts. This is the way federal programs go. Um, it's really encouraging that the money has been allotted, um, that the work, this, the selection of companies to do the work has started. And then you just watch and see how it goes. Uh, I think my impression is that the American public often has a misperception of the way federal legislation works because we often go back to the well for additional funding or for addition, re additional regulations or some sort of add-on. We amend legislation all the time. And I would fully expect that um, in this instance, there'll be um, other infrastructure bills most likely, and there'll be other funding bills in the future that probably a lot more money to broadband access particularly as we see how in some communities it's been very successful. Well, I think it's very hard for most people to see the result of something if suddenly broadband is in their area and be able to marry that back to the legislation that made it possible. It's not something really tangible for them. But what would you, if you had your druthers, uh, what would you like to see happen eight years down the road? Uh, what would the picture look like if everything went according to your desires? You know, I mentioned South Korea earlier, and it's um, it's hard not to think about what they've achieved. Um, mm. South Korea is now rolling out um, uh, one gigabit uh, service to every home in the country, and they're going to make it available for twenty bucks a month, um, which is wow. just kind of yeah, it's kind of it's kind of stunning. Um, South Korea is a small country; uh, it's densely populated, much more densely populated nationwide than the United States is, but still, it's a small country. So doing this is, an e is, is easier. And South Korea has gone all in on technological advancement. Um, they put bike lanes in between the, um, the lanes on the freeway, and then they've covered them up with, um, oh, wow. 
they've covered them up with uh, how would you call them? Um, well, they're solar panels basically that shade the bike lanes in between the freeway, freeway lanes. So they're generating electricity the entire time. Wow. Um, yeah, it's pretty remarkable to see. Um, but if we could just approximate some of that, and as a nation, we can't really. I mean, this has to this has to happen in terms of federal grants that go to the states that then get to administer things like that. Some states would gladly take the money and try and utilize it in exactly that way, and some would not. But I, uh, I mean, I think we should use, the United States is often very hesitant to use other countries as an example of how to behave, but seeing how other smaller countries have, what they've been able to accomplish through concerted effort and a real commitment to technological advancement, if you could do that on a state level, um, I think it could really change a lot of lives. And it would perhaps change the, the people who have JOMO, as we discussed earlier, the joy of missing out, um, might find that uh, their lives were enhanced as well in ways they never anticipated. Absolutely. David McFarland, Marketing Communications Manager with Medsphere. Amazing conversation as always. If folks want to get in touch with Medsphere, what's the best place for them to go? Go to medsphere.com and all of our contact information is available there. Thanks again, David. And thank you for watching this episode of Full Circle Healthcare brought to you by Medsphere. Looking for more great Full Circle Healthcare content? Make sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We have more shows coming your way, so be on the lookout for those. Until then, this is James Kent saying let's talk again soon.